0: week, we went to California for a few days. We ducked in and uh, loaded up the Suburban, threw everybody in there, uh, threw all the stuff on top, and cruised to Carlsbad, uh, Encinitas area, and so had a fantastic time. There was a swell that rolled in Monday, so we were able to surf. I was for a few days, and Kay was a saint and watched all five kids in hotel room while I paddled out each morning, so... We can all thank her for that because it makes Kevin a much happier person, better pastor, all the things if I get to surf. So uh, we can thank her for that. Uh, One night, though, I went out and I was uh, trading in a surfboard because I had one for when I was... You know, younger and not as 40 as I am now, uh, which means that I had to get a little bit longer one. And so uh, I was trading it in, went there, and had to do it before it shut down. So went to our favorite spot to get some clam chowder. So the Encinitas Fish Shop. uh, There's a series of these fish shops, but they're delicious food, uh, and they serve delicious seafood. It's phenomenal. Uh, I went to put the order in, and. then had to wait 30 minutes because they were just slammed because everybody else also knows their delicious food. And so while I was walking down the street, I uh, came across a lady, uh, probably in like her, I don't know, older than me by very like probably 60s, 70s, 80s. I don't know. She was on a cart. The longer she talked, the younger she sounded because she cussed a lot. And I was like, well, this is amazing. Like she was in a scooter though. And so I rolled, I was walking by and she's like, hey, are you a man who's strong enough to help me? And I was like, what kind of questions that right like she's sitting on her. I don't know what you need I don't know who you are I really don't know what's about to happen next because there's a lot of people on the streets of Encinitas because it's an amazing place to be uh, sober or otherwise and so she asked if I would help her I said sure what do you need um, I can try right I feel like I have to answer that yes I had 30 minutes to spend and I figured I could give her at least two of them whatever she needed couldn't be that crazy and she's like can you help me move my uh, mirror on my scooter So she had one of those scooters, those little things that you, like, cruise around, and she was trying to back up to her mailbox, and the the, the mirror was off so she couldn't see behind her, right? And she's like, I just need to tilt it a little bit forward. Uh, Can you do that for me? Are you strong enough to do that for me? And I was like, this lady's manipulating me, but I'm not backing down, right? Like, I'm sure I can. It's a scooter mirror, right? And so I go to move it, and I was like, oh, somebody, like, screwed that down tight. Like it was like somebody taking the Allen key and just wrenched that sucker on there. Whoever was before me who was probably tired of her asking them as well. She's like, they're going to stay. Uh, and I was like, hey, you're going to need like a, a screwdriver to, or like an Allen key to loosen this. And then it will just spin really easily. I don't have one of those on me. She's like, no, you don't. Just move it. Are you, can't you do it? I was like, this lady. Um, and so I was like, I, I could try, you want me to do it harder? She's like, yeah, keep going. And she's like cheering me on, right? And so I go to do it. Uh, this mirror is about this big. Uh, it's like a big one, it's not like one of those little bike rinky dink ones. Uh, and I go to move it, and all you hear is crack. And then this like 80 year old lady goes, ah! And I was like, what is it, electrified? And so, man, like, I have no idea about this woman. Like, I don't know if she's bonkers. I don't know if she's about to pull a switchblade on me. I don't know if she's about to, like, just cruise off laughing at me and tell all her friends. And uh, we spent, <laughs> and she's like, what'd you do? And I was like, what I told you was going to happen. It was going to break. And she's like, huh, well, what do we do now? <laughs> I just lose about 30 minutes of my life. I was like, well, I have duct tape in my car. Do you want me to go get that? She's like. Yeah, that'd be great. And so for the next 30 minutes, I hung out with, I asked her her name and she told me her name was the Scooter Lady. Not sure it's what it says on her official birth certificate uh but it's a scooter lady uh and we hung out for the next little bit while I tried to duct tape with like a whole lot of duct tape that mirror back on she was in no way put out by me breaking her mirror and making it so she couldn't see anything at all Uh, she seemed to be having a blast uh doing it and then at the point right when I'm about to leave uh old girl literally uh sitting on her scooter like moped right and she goes and she's like oh will you help me with one more thing I was like, why is this always the case? Um, and she's like, while you have tape, can you put my a sticker on the back of my scooter? I like, sure, I can. Yeah, I guess. Like, I have to tape it to the leather. Is that really what you want? She's like, yeah. And it's like my other car is a bike. She's like, it's not really. It's really a golf cart. Um, and so she wanted to put it on the back. But she goes like this. She goes and she stands up, walks around the scooter completely fine, and goes in the back. And she's like bending down, helping me put this... Uh, lovely piece of tape on there to put on this Trek sticker that says, my other car is a bike. All that to say, uh, sometimes we are absolutely going about life. We have an idea of what's about to happen. uh, And then we engage with something that entirely changes what we are going to do next. And sometimes that's for the good. Sometimes that's for the bad. Sometimes it's humorous stories of breaking scooter ladies' mirrors. um, And sometimes it is which she totally egged me into, which isn't even cool. and sometimes it's encountering texts of scripture that are meant to raise up things and then cause us to reorient back in line with who God is and what he's up to. And I love that we get to do this every single week where we come together and we sit in scripture. And in these stories that we're hearing uh, from Revelation, like don't lose the absolute mind-blowing mystery that these are the words of Jesus speaking to people he loves, helping to shape them into a faithful gospel presence. Uh, These aren't like archaic prophets speaking to Israel. This is an our act of the story, speaking to men and women and children who gathered in living rooms to figure out what does it look like to live as a new creation people in the midst of an empire. And so when this letter would have rolled through from John and it made its way to these people in Pergamum and we're about to hear this letter, please don't mystify it. In the first few words, it'll say to the angel of the church and you're like, see, that's about like weird things. I don't even get that. All that word means is messenger. To the messenger of the church of Pergamum. And then they're gonna share some things that weren't, preached to big old mega stadiums full of people thinking like Joel Osteen style where it's the whole arena full of people and words just shouted out to them but this address was to probably groups of 10 to 25 people who would gather in living rooms and read this whole letter and say how do we live now in light of what Jesus has called us to and so we're going to end the teaching time saying Jesus what do you want me to do with this and I want that question even in your mind as Nicole comes up and reads it. And so she's gonna come up, Nicole, and she's gonna read the text to us. It'll be Revelation two twelve through 17. Last week, I didn't put the words on the screen, so this time I will, just to keep you on your toes. But I encourage you to listen as the word of God is read.
1: And to the angel of the church in Pergamum write, the words of him who has the sharp two-edged sword I know where you dwell, where Satan's throne is. Yet you hold fast my name, and you did not deny my faith, even in, in the days of Antipas, my faithful witness, who, has, who was killed among you, where Satan dwells. But I have a few things against you. You have some there who hold the teaching of Balaam, who, who taught Balak to put stumbling blocks before the thrones of Israel, so that they might eat food, sacrifice to idols, and practice sexual immorality.
0: Jesus, we are grateful that you spoke and that you still speak. Uh, We ask that tonight you would continue to to grow our affection for you. Would you show us the areas where maybe we're falling into the same patterns as those in Pergamum, a city that was around so long ago. Uh, Would you show us what it is you have for us in this text? Would our hearts be fertile soil for repentance and conviction? And God, would we not be like a child who uh, turns against any sort of correction? Uh, But would we be those who trust you enough to believe that what you say is good and your paths lead to life uh, so that we might experience that ourselves and extend that to others? Uh, We love you, Jesus, and are glad that you meet with us and ask these things in your name and by the power of your spirit, amen. Amen. Just like we have been the last few weeks, I'm going to read through that, break it down a little bit, and then talk through some implications it might have for us. Uh, We talked about how a lot of the images that are in these different texts come from the Old Testament, so they might seem a little bit different, a little obscure. There's a lot of names that kind of scattered through this one, and you're like, wait, I feel like I should know something about that, but I'm not sure I do. Uh, We'll talk through that a little bit and explain it, uh, because for the people in Pergamum, it would have made perfect sense. Uh, It'd be like if they were watching uh, an SNL skit from today and they'd be like, I don't get any of what these references are. I don't get these people. This makes no sense. And then you watched it with somebody who's around today and they're like, oh, I know that's making fun of that guy. That's making fun of that lady. That's making fun of that couple. That guy's supposed to be Kanye and nobody likes him right now. Like it'd be, you'd be able to figure all that out. Uh, But somebody else looking in from a different time period is like, I don't get any of this, but I I feel like it's important. Um, And so let's just, talk through it a little bit, Um, and we'll just break it down. Uh, John writes this. He says, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, write, uh, these are the words of him who has a short double-edged sword. I know where you live. Uh, Can we just just pause real quick? If you were to stop there and take a breath, can you imagine that? Uh, So you're sitting in the room, and you're reading this letter, and it's like, to the angel of the church in Pergamum, you're like, that's us. These are the words of him who has a sharp double-edged sword, and I know where you live. Like, that's like the entrance into a horror movie, isn't it? Like, And this word, double-edged sword, wasn't like a little dagger. Like, as they would have heard this, they knew exactly what this was. This was a broad, heavy, like think William Wallace sort of sword. Like Roman Empire, heavy sword, swinging it back and forth in battle kind of sword. Not tucked in dagger, not letter opener, not nifty little scalpel that maybe a surgeon would use. But this is a warrior word. And so you know these words are coming from Jesus, But you also know there's a sobriety with this because the sword's coming out of his mouth. Normally you'd expect it to be at his hip, maybe on his hand. And so uh, you know that this is something that he's speaking, but this is a broad, heavy, probably judgment-oriented thing. And he says, I know where you live, but it's not a horror movie that's actually to their benefit. He says, I know where you live, where Satan has his throne Again, if you want to name your city something, that's probably not the tagline you're going, right? Um, What's Mesa's? Do you guys know what our title is, what our tagline is? City Limitless. Limitless. That's much more attractive than city where Satan dwells. Uh, He's saying, like, I know where you live, and I know it's a difficult place to be. The throne of Satan's in that place the deceiver, the tempter, the one uh, that's not nearly as easy to put on a bumper sticker as City Limitless. But Jesus says, I see that. I know that. Yet you remain true to my name. You're loyal. You did not renounce your faith in me, not even in the days of Anipas, my faithful witness, who was put to death in your city where Satan lives. Uh, for Pergamum, it was a city that was on the route. Remember, we're on our third city along the mail route. And this one was shaped in such a way that you would go up to the city. And so what the people in Pergamum did, they had a god that they worshipped, and his name was Caesar. And so they would take the Roman Caesar. They had built this massive uh, tabernacle, temple thing to them that would be almost like when you come into, um, if you are on the freeway. You can't really see L.A. because of all the smog, but if you've ever been in New York City and maybe you're coming across on the ferry and you come close to it and all of a sudden these massive buildings come out of the mist and you're like, yo, that is pretty impressive. And just like those buildings in New York City show you the gods of Wall Street, this big, massive temple made out of these black Rocks that were all throughout Pergamum would have been coming out as you came up to the city and your eyes would lift in worship and you would know that in this place was a place where worship was for the Herod, the Caesar, the Roman Empire. There was a cult that followed not just Caesar as a king but as a god, the son of God, the one who would bring peace and healing and restoration to the world. And so what he's saying is I know you live in this city that has raised to it this temple of the Caesar who Satan is using in oppression and violence to wreak havoc across the empire. A Caesar wasn't known for being a loving, kind, generous, sacrificial, self-giving kind of savior. Oppressive, violent, ruling through manipulation, and power being stripped from some and given to the wealthy. He says, That's where you guys call home. And I am so proud of you because even though you live in that place, you have not renounced your faith. Even when one of your own was dragged out and murdered in a pretty prolific public way, you didn't waver and everybody didn't scatter, but you stayed true and you stayed loyal. And he says, I see that. And like, Most of the letters, he's going to go on to say something else, but I want to make just a comment here for us. Because a lot of times, um, we have a hard time holding space for both things that are going well and where we're being faithful and areas where we're being unfaithful. Uh, Sometimes we just, it's either or, right? Like, all I can hear is Jesus saying, hey, well done, and then I shut out the rest of it. Or all I hear is, here's where you're falling short, and I I forget that there's actually areas where we're doing really well. And so catch this, this is true in your own life. This is true if you have a family. This is true in your friendships. This is true in your missional community. This is true in our church. Both those things can stand true. Both here is where you're being faithful and I want to celebrate that with you. And here's areas where we need to grow and we need to take this seriously. So when Jesus calls for repentance, he isn't saying, hey, everything's lost. You guys are terrible. He's saying, no, there's some things that we really want to celebrate. But there's also some areas that we really need to work on. And so for them, it keeps going. Uh, Verse 14 Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. And he's going to layer up the same thing twice. There are some among you who hold the teaching of Balaam, if you don't know who that is, we'll get there, who taught Balak, also confusing, to entice the Israelites, we know that one, to sin so that they ate food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. Likewise, you also have those who hold to the teaching of the Nicolaitans. Um, This story of Balaam is awesome. So if you want to read it, uh, read it tonight as a family. It's fantastic. Numbers 22 and 23, jot this down. It is amazing. Uh, it's going to sound very different than the way he's portrayed in this text, because when you read Numbers 22 and 23, he's actually not that bad of a guy. Uh, but then rabbinic traditions or people teaching on this through the years just stacked up the dude as, a, like, a, he was the villain. And so he gets kind of an unfair rap a little bit as time progresses. But Jesus is saying this, so we're going to let him just say it. Um, because that's what we do when Jesus says things. But the story of Balaam is a wild one, and it mixed together a few, few movies for us. Uh, the first thing that it does, uh, number 22, Balaam is a prophet. He's a prophet. He's not an Israelite, uh, but he seems to have a relationship with God, namely because he talks to him, uh, and he hears from him, and they have conversations and dreams, and he's able to, to divine from God things that are true for the world. Pretty wild. Balak is a king who is a king on a border when Israel's coming out of the Exodus. They're coming across the promised land and they set up camp right on the corner of Balak's uh, country. And he's like, this is not good. Like, this is no bueno at all. Um, we're going to need to do something. I can't fight against these people. It says how multiple-eyed they are. That they're so prosperous. There's so many of them. They've been hearing of the way that they've been conquering countries as they went along the way. And so Balaam goes, I know what we need We need to find a guy who's going to curse them. And so he calls up Balaam. And he sends an emissary to go to Balaam and says, hey, Balaam, will you curse these people? Like, proclaim a curse on them. I'll pay you out for it. It'll be all good. Balaam goes, hey, uh, you guys can sleep for the night. I'm going to go talk to God and see what he wants me to do. And uh, he talks to God, the true and living God. And as you can imagine, God didn't say, yeah, go for that. Uh, he said, no, you can't do that. Um, I'm not going to let you curse them. Actually, whoever blesses them will be blessed. Whoever curses them will be cursed. Like, you can't do that. So those guys run back to Balak, and they're like, yo, he said no. Bala's like, what in the world? Did I not give him enough money for this? And so he says, here's what we're going to do. Sends more people of higher stature and a higher price tag and says, hey, will you uh, come and curse these people? Because they're going to wipe us out. We're going to get in trouble. They're going to fight us. And uh, he comes back and Balaam goes, all right, well, let me talk to God about it again. And so he talks to God and God's like, it's a weird interchange. He goes, "Uh, well, they're already here. So I guess you can go with them, but you can only say what I tell you to say. So he comes out from talking to God. The next morning, he's like, hey, I can go with you, um, but I can only say what God lets me say, right? And so he's on his way to go there. As he's going, uh, he's riding his donkey. This guy is riding a donkey. Um, and then all of a sudden, this thing turns to Shrek because he's riding his donkey and the donkey just stops in the middle of the road, middle of the pathway. It's coming in through a narrow space and he comes in, the donkey just stops. And he's like, oh, I'm gonna beat you for that. So he starts beating his donkey. And the donkey, well, settles down walks a little bit further and then it says like he does this three times and it's funny because it's the time when he pins the guy balaam's ankle against the wall that he gets really ticked and starts beating on the donkey and the donkey turns around catch this the donkey turns around goes why are you hitting me this is wild in the bible because it doesn't even make commentary that this donkey's talking it's not even like so this is what happens right it's just like the donkey turns around and goes full shrek and says hey what are you doing hitting me all these years, you've ridden on my back. Have I ever done this before? And Balaam's like, no, no, you haven't. And he's like, all right, here's the deal. There's an angel with a sword in front of us, and if I keep going, we're both dying. Donkey's saying all this. And uh, he goes, and he's talking to his donkey, and he's like, what, really? And then all of a sudden, the sword comes out, he sees the angel with the sword, and he's like, oh, there really was. And the interchange goes on, and he's able to then uh, engage with this angel again where he gets a message from god continues on his way and it's just this wild story right donkey doesn't get to talk again i guess until uh shrek and so he keeps going and as they get there he comes to king balak and balak goes all right cool finally you're here what happened the first time did i not offer you enough money and he's like no that's not it like here's the deal king i can't do anything that god doesn't say i can say so i will pray i will divine i will ask him and then i will speak but i can only say what he tells me to say And the king goes, great, uh, that should be curses because that's what I'm paying you for. So he goes and he prays and he comes back down and it turns into another movie, Jim Carrey's Liar, Liar, where every time he goes to talk, he cannot curse the people of Israel but can only speak blessing over them. And so it's like no matter what he tries doing, and I imagine it got kind of frustrating when this guy's like, yo, I brought you in for all this money. And I was going to pay you. And all I need you to do is do a curse. And so uh, he gives three different prophecies that are all blessing and telling the majestic story of God and Israel and how he rescued him. And the king's like, that's nice. That's not what I wanted to hear. And then each time he gets progressively angry that all he does is bless the people, not curse them. And the king moves him around a few times and be like, all right, maybe you see too many Israelites. Come here to a place where you only see a few Israelites. He's like, still can't do it. And then she does it again. He's like, puts him into a really high place where he can't see any Israelites. He's like, still can't do it. God's not letting me. Um, I say, fine then, I'm not paying you. Um, And then the story ends, which is kind of weird. Um, There's a few places in the Bible where this Balaam story is marked for greed because Balaam was even willing to curse the people of God just for cash. And so there's a place in 1 Peter and a place in Jude where it's pointed out, hey, this guy was greedy. Don't go the way of Balaam. But Jesus highlights something else here where he says, what he did was he wasn't able to overtly curse the Israelites. But what he says in the text is he says he taught Balak to entice the Israelites to sin so that they offered the food sacrificed to idols and committed sexual immorality. When you get to um, Numbers 24, it starts off with now as they were waiting on the borderlands, they started to engage in sexual immorality with the women and they started eating the food offered to idols and so what Jesus is linking together is that while Balaam couldn't come out and say, hey, curses on you, he was able to create an environment where the people gave in to their own temptations and brought curse on themselves. Because remember, God had said, if you follow my commands, you walk in the way of life. When you deviate from them, you'll come under curse. And so he created an environment where it became conducive for the people of Israel, where they gave into what they wanted for that moment, forgetting the story they were a part of, the vocation they had, and the God who had rescued them, and just wanted what was in front of them. Wild Owl comes down to appetites for both food and sex in that moment because it is not that distant from any other era in time. And then the Nicolaitans was a very similar thing. Uh, There's not a whole lot known about them, but it says that they were the same two things, that they had these massive parties where everybody would get wasted and everybody would have sex with one another, completely out of line with how God designed it, with one man, one woman in a marriage for life. And instead said, we're gonna do what we wanna do in this moment because it's advantageous, it makes sense business-wise, it feels good, there's lots of reasons why, but they were participating in that. So Jesus' indictment on them is, hey, you guys are loyal, but some of you are allowing and participating in these activities that are completely other than me. Here's my question for you guys to turn to each other and answer. Why does Jesus even care? Like there's a lot going on in the world. There's the Roman Empire. They're burning people alive. Other people are getting murdered. Like there's a whole lot of oppression going on. There's a lot of slavery. There's a lot of things that are happening. They're not even the ones holding the parties. They're probably just attending them. Uh, they're probably just participating in them in. Isn't this just their own bodies, what they want to do? Why does it really matter? Why does Jesus even care enough to say, hey, here's two things, like your worship of these idols? Because it was more than just eating the food sacrifice to them. It was participating in idol worship. And this immorality piece where you guys are engaging in this, like turn towards and just give a few thoughts maybe. Why does Jesus even care? Here's what I want to say. Uh, This matters because God loves us like children. That's the first thing. Like he actually loves you and wants what is best for you. And he says, this is not the way to experience life. It's the way to experience death. A no good parent, and we talked about how God comes in like a parent to his churches in loving care. no good caregiver would come in and be like, hey, I don't really care what you do. Uh, Do whatever you want to do, and you guys can deal with the consequences. But he's looking at them saying, hey, I love you, and individually as people, I don't want you to live in ways that lead to death. If I know that, why would I let you do that? Uh, we have a child living in our house right now who's four years old and hates any correction that you give him. Like It's like there's a street. Don't run in it. There's a beach. That wave will wipe you out. That funky area where the water's all crazy, that's called a riptide. You can't swim. Please don't choose that place to throw your bucket. And in his mind, he's like, why? I could do what I want to do. And then we try to pull them back. There's tears and scream. Right, it's like this imagery of like, no, 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 you don't understand. Like, if you go in that rip current, you cannot swim. And either I get to you in enough time, or I don't. But the the end of this is not life. It's lungs filled with salt water, and I don't want that for you. It's like a loving parent coming in. Uh, another illustration, just to maybe think through it. Of how many of you guys like roller coasters? How many like, rides that go upside down in any way, shape, or form? Uh, there's a very important part of that ride. What's an important, if your, if your ride goes upside down, whether at Disney or Six Flags or a really cool parent, I guess, um, what would, what's an important part for any ride that goes upside down, uh, what do you need to do first? When you get on the ride, what do they do? Buckle. Yeah, buckle. And very often, don't they have a harness that they pull down over your head? Yeah, and you pull it in, and it clicks in, and then that 16-year-old walks by and shakes it to make sure you really did it good. Um, And so shakes it for you just to be like, yeah, you got that, cool. Um, Imagine with me that you're sitting in that thing, and you know you're about to go on the ride, whatever it is, the one that goes the loop-de-loop. And you go, hey, uh, cool, I appreciate you offering the harness. I'm actually going to go without it this time. Like, I I don't think I need it but you're on the ride, you're ready to roll. Like, and you're just like, no, 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 no. Like, I get that there's a mathematician who put together how much gravity is pressed against me and I'm gonna need this so I don't fall out. I understand that there is also an actuary who's worked out the numbers to say, it's not worth having people die uh, on this ride and so we'll have this. And it's the bride owners who say, hey, I just generally want you to have a good time And so to do that, we put this on, and this is the best possible way to live when you're on a roller coaster, is to have this harness. It's not holding you back. It's keeping you in a place of blessing where you can enjoy this, and we do it by having a harness. Similarly, when God gives guidelines or he gives instructions or he offers ways to live, it is something that is meant to keep us in the path of blessing, not to withhold from us some good thing. But sometimes it's hard to remember that. And so these people, he loves them. Uh, In John, the letter, he says, behold, what manner of love the Father has given unto us that we should be called children of God. He loves us dearly. He wants what's best for us. If you have a niece, a nephew, a child, you know some feelings of that where you're like, man, I really want what's best for you. And so when I see you walking in ways that don't lead to life, I need to call that out. And he's saying, when you're giving yourself over to idolatry, that is radical self-harm. In the words of Chris Wright, that's radical self-harm. Why would I let you do that without saying something? When we treat our sexuality outside of the way that God has called us to and invited us to in a way that leads to life and blessing. He says, I don't want you to be harmed by that. And many of our histories are filled with stories where we'd say, yeah, that that does lead to a lot of harm and grief and work to be done because I didn't trust God was enough and I thought I needed something else. Secondly, he loves his church. Remember, these letters are calling the church to faithful gospel presence in the midst of a time with a pagan empire that was coming against them and looking to wipe them out. And he said, I want you to be faithful in persevering to the end. And if you're gonna do that, you can't just accept in patterns of behaviors that are against me. I love you and I want your witness to be bold and faithful. I want the church to do what the church was called to do. And you can't be faithful to your vocation while also allowing these practices that you know are against me. And then he loves the world. Uh, The words for God so loved the world that he gave his one and only son that whoever believes in him won't perish but have everlasting life weren't just meant to be on end zones or on coffee mugs. This is actually how God feels about his creation. And so he wants creation to be blessed. He wants the poor to be blessed. He wants the marginalized to be blessed. He wants the world to be blessed because the Christian community trusts God enough to live and obey like he actually is a loving father, not a greedy ogre in the sky who's trying to keep you away from everything fun. I said, you seem to have forgotten that because you're adopting these practices. And I would just say, like, how do they get there? It's like, man, that seems so far. Like, how could you ever forget the story you're a part of? Like, how would you ever forget that you're a part of this grand story where God's a good God who does everything good, right, and beautiful? Actually, it's when human beings think they need to step outside God's reign, and they ate from the fruit of the tree that everything went wrong. Uh, And then he again made a promise, and he was faithful all through the Old Testament. And then even just a few years, decades before this was written, Jesus came, and he lived, and he died, and he rose again, and he sent his spirit, and it filled the church, and they believed that and they were set free from patterns of behavior and belief that led to them being enslaved how would they ever forget that this is the same way we do but all of us run the risk of doing the same exact thing and I, I think the words of Jesus that are spoken to this church echo over us as well Something that might be helpful for us to think through is like, well, but how do I get, what what is it that I'm doing? Like, how is it that I get to that place? I love that these particular people uh, hadn't abandoned the faith. They just added to it. They hadn't stopped coming to gatherings on Sunday. They hadn't stopped getting together with the missionary community. They hadn't stopped getting together for Bible studies. They hadn't stopped serving the poor. They hadn't stopped uh, being faithful when somebody said, are you a Christian? They still said yes, but they started adding other things to that that they knew were against the God that they said they loved. Areas where they didn't believe that God was enough and so they needed to take for themselves, whether for financial reason or personal pleasure or to gain an upper hand in power. Whatever the reason was that they did it, some of them were participating in it and there seems to be the sense that others knew about it but weren't saying anything. I wonder if there are even in the the grace of the spirit to bring up ways that we could think and say, hey man, here's something that I know that I've added into my life. Uh, He uses the things that are sexual in nature and I think that's on purpose because that's a common struggle for all humanity. That's not just a grown-up thing, like there are patterns of life that begin very early on that are healthy or unhealthy when it comes to dealing with our own bodies and the bodies of other people. And those patterns start super young. There's ways that we look at the world and we start to say, hey man, I I get that I trust Jesus, but I don't know that he will give me everything I need. Maybe I need to hoard some resources for myself. Uh, Maybe I need to hoard some time for myself. Maybe I need to hoard these other things for myself because I don't believe that God's actually given me enough. And so I need to protect and preserve myself. The invitation of Jesus is to engage with us a very different way. And I would just say, like, how do we respond? How do they respond? I would say, first and foremost, listen to Jesus. Like, like hear the address of Jesus and consider, could this be for me? The Balaam, Balak, Nicolaitans all makes it like four steps removed from where we're at. But let's ask the question this way. Are there practices that we're currently participating in that we know don't honor Jesus? And this could be in the privacy of your phone or as public as a club. It could be your tax returns. It could be the way that you care for people in your class. It could be who you choose to eat lunch with. It could be who you lie about in the schoolroom. Like It could be any number of things Are there practices that we currently participate in that we know are against Jesus and what his kingdom stands for in freedom and life and healing and reconciliation? Listen to his voice. I know you're doing good in a lot of areas, but here's some practices you're in that are not leading to life. And then it says, if you have ears, listen to the letters to the churches. So we're going to go back to the church in Ephesus and say, it's that piece of remember, repent, return. Remember the story you're a part of. Remember the gospel you have received. Remember the salvation you experienced. Remember the purpose you were saved for. Remember the role of the church in God's mission, and you're a part of that. Remember your neighbors need the gospel declaration and demonstration. They don't need you just to be cool doing whatever they're doing. They need you to be a light in the darkness, salt where it needs flavor. Remember that God has never failed to follow through on a single promise. In that Balaam passage, Balaam's prophetic word is saying, God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful, God is faithful. Trust him. And the people of Israel, the next chapter, are like, and then they started chasing women, and then they started eating at these parties. They didn't trust that God was enough. They thought there was good outside of him. Remember, his provision is always better than our self-preservation. Remember these things. Draw them back to mind. And the second step, repent or turn from. And hear this with love. Some of us have some things that we need to stop believing will satisfy us and that we need to stop doing. Like that, that's, a, that's a hard truth, but it's a real truth because all of us sin, right? Like all of us fall short. All of us at any given moment can make something else raise it up higher than Jesus. So this isn't just somebody else, or I could never admit to that. Starting at the front of the room and working on back, there is something in your life that you're clinging to that is not Jesus, I promise you. Would he be gracious enough to point that out? Some of us need to repent from compromising our calling through active disobedience. What do I mean by that? I mean, some of us, our web browser history tells a story of a person trapped in lust. Some of us, our next Netflix cues tell the story of longings for intimacy that are being met voyeuristically, not relationally, within God's parameters. Some of us know the idols that we're adding to Jesus, idols of comfort, approval, success, or control, and all I need to do is say, hey, what's that idol? And you're like, yeah, I know what that is, and I know how I'm running to it. Would we repent from it? Idols of food, drink, entertainment that need to be torn down. Some of us need to tear down the idols we build of good things like financial security or even our families, where we compromise our calling for things we know our priorities might be out of whack. We can turn good things into God things. Some of our bank accounts tell the story of self indulgence over sacrificial generosity. Some of us are finding comfort in substances, not the Savior. Some of us think that Jesus won't provide, so we need to preserve for ourselves. Like there is a myriad of ways and activities that we can participate in on a regular basis that say something else is better than Jesus. And the invitation is to say, no, it's not. Oh, now I remember. I had forgotten. I had gotten really short-term amnesia. I would forgotten that Jesus was this good. I would forgotten that this won't satisfy. I would forgotten that that's a lie. I forgot that Satan's a freaking liar, and he told me the lies again and again and again, and I finally believed it. Like, that's not true. Now I remember what's true. Now I remember, again, the good news. Turn from that activity or that belief and turn back to the reality that God is a good God, a righteous king, a perfect savior, who is like a parent who loves you and wants to lead you to life. There's also a second group of people in here. Um, when he says repent, he says, repent therefore, otherwise I will soon come to you and will fight against them with the sword of my mouth. There's a change in words in there. I'll come to you, plural. I'm gonna come to your church and I'm gonna fight against them who hold to these things. So either you guys deal with this or I'm gonna come and deal with this. And they don't have this language like, well, it's, well, at least it's not me. <laughs> All right, come deal with it. Like, this is them then. No, remember, these are friends. These are family. These are members of a church. These are part of a tribe and a community. And if it happens to them, it happens to us. And so what he's actually saying is that some of us need to repent from compromising our calling by passively allowing others to knowingly be in patterns of sin, but not lovingly calling them to repentance. And Jesus is saying, like, hey, would you guys together take this good news call back into a right way of life? And in some ways, use this call as a scalpel to carve out what's there before I have to come with a broad sword of judgment and deal with it. You say, I'm giving you this ability where we can deal with it as an incident. You guys can repent. You can turn back to me. You can experience life. Or we can deal with this another way. But either way, I'm not going to let it keep going. So active disobedience, those that are doing those things, stop and turn back to me. Those that are allowing it to go on and acting like it's not, instead of lovingly calling other people to repentance, you guys got to step in that role. And then he lifts their eyes to remember it's not just about this moment. And so that return, I put in this one, return and receive. He keeps going, whoever has ears, let them hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who's victorious, the one who actually does what I'm telling you to do, to that person, I will give that person a white stone with a new name written on it, known only to the one who receives it. I'll also give some of the hidden manna. Two images at the end to remind you first and foremost, when we believe that God is not enough and we turn to something else, he's saying, remember a time in the desert when there was manna that nobody thought they could have provision. They thought all was lost. They thought they would have to grab for themselves. And I provided freely just enough for that day. Like that manna back in the days, we going back to the wilderness, back when it seemed like there was no hope, back when it seemed like there would be no provision. Hey, remember you could trust me then. Your whole people are here today because I was faithful that day. And I still got some of that in store for you. No, manna didn't physically come down, but provision absolutely did. And he's saying, if you remain faithful, I will provide for you some of that hidden manna that I still have stored with me. I will provide. You don't need to add to what I've already given you. And then the second thing, it's a little bit different. It's like, wait, about white stones? And you're like, all right, where's that in the Old Testament? It's not. Um, in Pergamum, it can mean one of two things. The first thing was, remember I said, do you remember the color rocks I said they built their temple out of? Black. They were black rocks. They had these onyx rocks that were beautiful that they built these things out of. And so if you want uh, somebody to stand out to be famous, like popular, or to be really cool, you're a benefactor, they'd put your name on a white rock and stick it to that and say, hey, they helped build this thing. So like if you go to Cider Corps um, and you're right by the cash register, they've got these different plaques of people that gave early on or And so one way is that Jesus is saying like, hey, I will honor you if you are faithful. I will put your name on this white stone. Nobody else even has to know what that name is, but you'll know it. And that intimacy with me is even greater than the false intimacy that you might have with these gods or these people sexually. Like it's so much more beautiful than that. I will give you a name and I will make you somebody and establish you. And so that white stone would be against that black rock showing this is somebody notable that's worthy. And he says, I'll give that to you. it's not for the sake of everyone nobody else is even going to know the name is yours but it is a second thing that they say it could be is that uh when they would throw parties in pergamum another thing they would do is hand out white rocks with your name on it and that's how you were knew you were invited to the party is that it was almost like an invitation they didn't do evites back then that apparently they'd give you a rock and so i don't know which one of those uh jesus is playing on one of those two images but both are pretty powerful that he says if you return to me and if you are faithful I will provide more than enough in a way that will blow your mind, trust me. And he's saying, I will give you your value because I am the most valuable, that gift to you, whether an invitation to the party or your name in a place of prominence, it comes by being faithful, not capitulating to the government of your time. And so, in light of that, we're gonna set the table up. At the table, we see the story we are a part of. It's a story with Jesus as a savior. Uh, the story that we are a part of, God is a God of provision, even when it seems impossible. Uh, the story that we're a part of, that we can remember and receive good things from God, he's not holding back from us. All throughout the story, culminating in the person and the work of Jesus. And even when we sin, even when we fall short, even when we fail, the invitation is still back to the table to once again receive grace. Would he do the work with a scalpel of removing the sin so that our church doesn't fall under the judgment of things that we could have turned from but chose not to?